Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Petro Nerds Podcast. This is episode 57 with Aaron Hunter. He is a return, he is one of the only few returning guests. Um, he's with ConocoPhillips, and we're going to dive into a lot with that. It is a Wednesday, August 17th. 2022. And um, I, I know I always say this, but holy moly, there is a lot going on in the global oil market. And um, I'm going to get into prices and everything because they're they're pretty volatile and crazy. And we've had a unique sort of earnings season. Um, but without further ado, Aaron, I'd love to welcome 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 back to the Petronas podcast. Thank you so, yeah, so much. Yeah, thanks. For Glad to be back. here again. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. Um, so yeah, it is August 17, 2022. We have WTI prices about $87 a barrel, which interestingly enough, the last time we had you on the podcast, that's basically where um, oil prices were in January. However, um, natural gas prices are significantly higher than they were at that time. They're yep. more than double of that. Um, but Brent is hanging around $92.58. We've got Henry Hub at a whopping $9.24. Um, we're going to come back to that. I think there's some serious, serious issues with this high of natural gas prices. I've been beating this drum in presentations, you know, from clients to public presentations across the board, but I'm very concerned about it. And then um, Dutch TTF, so European natural gas prices in dollars per MMBTU is 67.59 right now, which is just out of control. The 30-year mortgage, which is very highly correlated to the 10-year yield, um, if you're seeing a lot of wackiness in the market and wondering why the stock market is up when the economy is not good, um, that's because you know, people trading the market um, want to believe that the Fed is not going to raise rates. That 10-year yield and the inverted yield curves that we're seeing suggests otherwise. So the 10-year yield is 2.906, and that is why you're seeing that it's up a smidgen, and that is why you're seeing um, mortgage rates at 5, um, 5.48%. Um, they've moved up a little bit. So that's sort of encapsulating that. I would say the backdrop to this before we dive in, and I, I have, you know, talking to someone with a public company, one, it's fantastic to have you on the podcast. Um, two, uh, Aaron Hunter has actually switched roles a bit and was when we last spoke on the podcast in episode 38, which I just re-listened to. Absolutely recommend folks listening to it because it is it it still holds up very well um, and lots of great intel and information. But we talked a lot about the Midland, we talked a lot about Conoco and the market and technology. And this one now, Aaron Hunter, is you're working more with the Delaware now. Um, so we get to switch gears a little bit and talk about the Delaware, which is awesome because it's exciting and some of the best rock. Um, I'm Midland is as well, but some of the best rock in the entire world. So really, really pumped to talk about that. Um, but I would say on the backdrop, I mean, you had a very yep. great earning, you know, good earnings call, um, fantastic stuff. And there's a lot sort of, I would say, a lot has happened between when we spoke in January. There's been three earning calls since then. I've, I've listened to all of them. I listened to the last one twice, actually. And I would say one of the biggest notes I picked up, obviously, right. is natural gas, is, is um, Conoco's push and foray, you know, and more. Uh, you guys have always been heavily exposed to natural gas, but big stuff on LNG, stuff going on with Qatar. And the way sort of the energy transition is talked about, um, I think, you know, your CEO M opens up talking about with energy security, more so than I think in, in previous calls it's mentioned, but this one's emphasized. I, th I do think that's different from um, and, and positive in many ways, because a lot of I listened to Pioneer Natural Resources earnings call. And, you know, Scott Sheffield 
you know, talked about $100 oil being, you know, the future for the next several years and mostly talked about shareholder returns and, you know, the business and energy security and technicals and all, all kinds of stuff really wasn't mentioned. And you guys had quite a bit of meat in your earnings call. So, you know, with that, I'm just going to, I'll stop talking and, and let you sort of take on from there for a little bit. But um, I think there's a, there's a lot to yeah, dive no, into. Definitely appreciate the introduction like that. And it's been, it's been a crazy what is it, eight, seven, eight months since we last talked out in the Permian anyway. Um, I, I am now over Delaware Basin. My current title is Vice President Delaware Basin. That was effective May of uh, 2022. Uh, but I've, I've been in Midland the past 17, 18 years. So um, I, I kind of knew, knew of the Delaware. Anyway, I've, I've worked Southern Delaware in the past, the Texas Delaware in the past. This isn't the yeah, New Mexico Delaware is new to me, but I'm learning, picking it up quick. But yeah, to your point, there, there's just an amazing amount of resource out here in the, in the basin between the Midland and Delaware. Uh, one one fun fact. I'm of course this is title Petro Nerds, and I'm, I'm I'm you're probably more nerdy than me, but I'm I'm almost equally nerdy. One uh, one stat I just fell across yesterday is from 2010. This is, this is only Delaware Basin, 2010 through roughly mid 2022. If you look at horizontal horizontal um, footage drilled to date, it's about the uh, same amount as the circumference of the Earth. So quite a bit of uh, horizontal drilling in the past 12 years in Delaware to drill uh, 24,000 miles around the world. So that's everyone. That's all, all operators. Yeah. That, that's all operators from the all public data that uh, oh, yeah. comes up to about 25,000 miles of lateral. So, yeah. And of course, all kinds nice. of resource that comes with that. Uh, just tons and tons of resource, um, oil and gas and tons of NGLs, all the WTI and WTL mixes in, in there as well. Just a phenomenal resource. Part of the reason I was looking at this stat anyway was just to figure out how much drilling is left in the in the Delaware, and it's obviously a ton, a ton of activity to do out here. Yeah, so I mean, I think I, we can start there. I mean, I want I want to talk about the Delaware and the difference sort of with the Midland, um, and I really do want to talk about sort of in the in the previous podcast we talked about spacing and and you know the shift between a, a bit of up spacing. You know, the de- the Midland is, is different in in the Delaware in in a lot of respects because it is you know a little bit shallower, a little bit more well known. We don't have. I mean, the Delaware is deep. Um, it's overpressured. It's hot. It's thermally mature. You have a lot of gas. You have a lot of gas drive. You have multiple stacked pay zones. You still have multiple. You have, you know, many of those things in the Midland, not quite so much. And Midland's very well known. And I think part of why, you know, you had a lot of companies, you know, ones that were willing to take the risk. We saw companies early on take bigger risks um, in the Delaware with with bigger returns. And you saw some monster oil wells, but you also had a lot of gas. And before in the beginning, sort of the Permian, I mean, gas was a problem when you didn't have the takeaway capacity. And I would argue we're probably near, and I'd love to talk about a little bit of, of gas stuff, especially in the takeaway capacity. Something that's talked about a bit in, in several of your earnings calls, at least mentioned a little bit, is, you know, watching and being cognizant of takeaway capacity. Conoco felt pretty comfortable that they have it. Um, but I think as everybody's geared with, with natural gas prices that high, you know, it, people are not afraid to produce natural gas anymore. And so as long as you have the takeaway capacity, you're going to be producing it. And if you're, if folks are concentrated or focused on the Delaware, and that's where the majority, I mean, you have rigs in Midland, but that's where the majority of your sort of your rigs are, is that um, there's great things about it, but there's also a lot of gas. So I'd love to talk a little bit just of the sort of yeah. stack pay, the thermal, the, you know, you're getting this nice gas drive and, and I want to get into some, we can talk about spacing yeah. and everything, but love to just talk about, I mean, I think the last time we talked on the phone, I mean, I, I I would say a year ago we weren't seeing it, but now there's probably a little actually okay. Tar- people are not necessarily directly targeting, hey, I'm going just after the gas, but they're definitely okay with going for gas drive, especially if the yeah, price is Yeah, definitely. I, I would say there's been a, a, a steering away of you know more of the traditional, um, I guess, upper zones where you got a little more dead oil, more water. 
towards the deeper zones. Obviously, Wolf Camp A is still a big resource out here, but there's deeper zones than that. Wolf Camp B, Wolf Camp C, they bring a ton more gas with them. Uh, you know, it's initial rates of a thousand to twelve hundred oil, but you know, eight to ten million a day of gas out of a two to three mile lateral. Um, you can and you can knock those out pretty quick as well, rel relatively quickly. Obviously, being Wolf Camp C or, or, or deeper than that, even it's going to increase cost. It's harder to drill, much 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 harder harder to frack, which slow things down. Um, you, in the in the deeper zones, you're dealing with like a 0 0.9, 0 0.95 psi per foot gradient, um, just pressure gradient. So very very undersaturated, but also very volatile oil. Um, so you bring these things on, and in, in the reservoir, it's you know it's liquid, but as it comes up, it evolves to just a high BTU gas and some pr pretty prolific wells right now. We're looking at on that state line area, kind of the western area as well. Us and other partners we're working with are just you know there, there is a trend towards this. Uh, of course, like you touched on. Between Henry Hub or um, International Gas, it is a it, for especially when you're trying to get it on water for LNG. Uh, it's just a phenomenal economics right now on on the gas out here. And I mean, partly that's because you're you are very close to market, so this is a this is a bit different than if you're sitting in the DJ, you're sitting in the Bakken, and you're trying to get that gas to market. Um, so you guys are close. Obviously, if you're in the Permian or in the Eagleford, um, which you guys are in both, um, you guys have exposure. Um, you guys have exposure to the Gulf, and and it's easier if you, as long as you have the infrastructure to get it out. But that is impacting, and and we'll circle back certainly on natural gas and LNG and and the global space and and many of the themes that were mentioned in the earnings call. But just from the the the, I guess the the focusing on natural gas from the drilling perspective and where the bits going and, and what you're producing in the in the in the Delaware is that that's not foregoing any oil production correct I mean you're also gas drive is a big component of this oil so maybe it might be a little lighter and more volatile and technically more condensate I'm guessing some of this is a higher API gravity but with prices where they're at that's all you know NGLs are favorable um even condensate's probably I mean. It, when you're north of, you know, $80 a barrel, I mean, all this stuff is getting pretty good prices and you're close to market. So I imagine that's, that's good. But the technical piece of, are you, um, are you drilling in different formations and are you mowing it down? Or are you sort of being able to target different formations and come back yeah. to the other zones? And I know that's yeah, a lot that, right that, there, that's but sort of take what you want. Yeah. So I would say, yeah, nobody is foregoing oil over gas. If anything, they're just shifting to gassier zones. It's still a ton of us, you know, whether it's a, Gas well with, with associated oil or vice versa, um, we're definitely still targeting the oily rich zones, just, just going for more gas rich, higher GOR basically. Um, and then to your, to your last point there, that has been an interesting shift between Midland and Delaware is I think for the, for the again, Midland's very complex, but it's also pretty homogeneous east to west, north to south within the fairway. For Midland, you see a lot more, you know, a lot bigger projects, a lot, lot, lot bigger commitments of uh, you know drilling down a section, two sections at a time. Um, for Delaware, again, this is across industry and just kind of looking at the average of who's doing what there is a lot more in three and four well projects uh, just just because again cycle time and cost and commitment there there's a, a lot more I guess it, the average is drifted towards a lower well well, well uh, per pad well per project well per project um, development scheme over in the Delaware some some people like to target the second bone spring Avalon for the kind of cheap quick hit on their other bigger companies like to go for the deeper get get the deeper stuff first and then work their way up the hole but there is probably a, a, a definite uh, shift over here between project size. And does that, so, I mean, having a, a slightly smaller project size, I mean, and do you think that's long, I mean, a long-term positive? I mean, that there, this really is, it's sort of, you can take it a little slower because you're going deeper and then you can shift over into more zones. It's not necessarily where you're foregoing any 
you're not, folks are not foregoing zones. I can't imagine that, um, you know, we talked in the previous podcast about a little bit of upspacing and things like that, but I can't imagine. And part of that was, you know, the bolt-ons and and longer laterals, but I can't imagine this is folks really wanting to forego actual wells in the ground. I mean, this has got to be a much more thought thought out process of, you know, we're hitting this zone and we, we know we can come back to this zone at a, at a later point and we know it's yeah, going to be a Yeah, comment. I think given the depth and the, the, the overall breadth of the uh, stack in the Delaware, there is more zonal isolation between things, uh, whether it's between, you know, Wolf Camp and Second Bone or which, whichever zone, there's a little more, more carbonate maybe as well. So I, I think most companies feel like there is more isolation between um, zones as far as parent-child stuff or interaction north and south on that. Uh, I, I will say, though, there's other, other companies out here that are, you know, they're still proposing 60, 50, 60 well projects across multiple benches and multiple sections. So there is definitely big projects in the Delaware. I think just the, the amount of smaller operators out here that maybe maybe can't afford or don't have the acres to do the big projects. That's, that's why the average would shift towards a little bit lo- lesser uh, project density. And I, I would also say to your earlier comment. Right. And I would say. Go ahead. I was going to say no, no, your earlier comment around spacing. I think for the most part, again, in, in broad averages, I think we're included in that average. Spacing kind of has normalized as far as the, um, I would call it lateral spacing, east-west. Now, people are still tacking on zones above or below on their zones, but in, in one each particular zone, through all the learnings the industry did, ourselves included, back with Concho, but all the tight projects we all did, I think, and then, and then you see those kind of upspace a little bit with oil price, and then now maybe trend, trending down slightly as we optimize and tune things. But I would say for the most part, uh, again, it's, it's going to change where you are in the basin, but when you're in certain fairways, I would say that the, the spacing is getting pretty narrow on a, on a lateral sense. Okay. No, that, that's, that's a great point. Um, and we'll come back to sort of, we'll come back to, to, to lateral length and stuff as well. But so overall, I mean, you've got Conoco has, you know, 14 rigs. Um, most of these are, are in the Permian Basin. Most of these are in the Delaware. That is an uptick from, you know, up, over the, the course of the past two yep. years, you've sort of up, upticked and increased activity. I do think it's important to point out that, you know, if you're following the last three earnings calls, I think the that there was a trend and theme of the increase in CapEx, right? That that was noted of saying one, partly because of inflation and not crazy inflation, um, that you guys are obviously trying to control that, but we do have inflation yeah. and we'll come back and talk to that. Um, but that, that there was an increased CapEx because you're adding, you're, you're wanting to add more wells. And I think it was clarified that, you know, sort of 90, 90 wells were turned online, if I have this correct, in the first quarter. Um, 500 wells were planned for completion for the year, and that would sort of be back heavy. And I may have that wrong for for just the Permian, um, but that that was a couple quarters ago that was slated as it would be a little bit back, um, you know, heavy on the back end because 90 was the first quarter. But that the point was that there was a lot of wells being added. Yeah. Um, and I I would just like to get your your thoughts sort of and feedback on that on the Permian specifically. Yeah. So I, I think I heard that com- comment in the earnings call as well, and I think that was from Jack. Uh, I think that was from more of a lower 48 number as far as the 500. Um, but, but but lower 48 in, yeah. in, in, in general and Permian, we are back, back weighted to the back half. Just obviously, when you're picking up activity and rigs and doing bigger projects, just project cycle time is going to kick them to the back half of the year anyway. But yeah, looking at the Delaware, um, from my side, we've got multiple big projects coming online in the next you know quarter. I'm sure it's, it's all public. You can look at it in the, in the uh, New Mexico websites. But um, we are definitely back weighted, even in, in Delaware, back weighted to uh, projects popping soon, probably third quarter and fourth quarter. Both elevated, but they're part of this uh, l- l- larger right. projects I, as well. Right, and I think, um, and I, I know that in you guys also talking to earnings call, there was a, a question to reiteration. I think it, in a few quarters ago, asking about what's the 
production guidance and outlook for the year. And I think something around 800 to 900,000 barrels, uh, barrels a day, um, entry to exit for 2022. Um, I think there was a comment that it was this, you know, looking at overall us that this would maybe be a little lower in 2023 given inflation. Um, I, I think 800 to 900,000 barrels a day is a pretty healthy number. I'm in line with that, that we'll be well North of, I think we'll be well North of 12 million barrels a day, um, by the end of the year. And I think that that incremental ad is, is certainly important to be thinking in the context of, you know, where's the global oil macro, um, not just supply, but demand in the global economy. It's, it's really important. Um, and I do think that as production lags, and we see that a lot, if you're trying to look at, you know, data from Inverius through Prism or whatever, and, and other data that, you know, yes, EIA is showing bullish numbers. We talked right. about in the last podcast of, you know, probably Permian around four and a half, five million barrels a day. And I re-pulled up the numbers and was looking at your guys's, and I believe so. Conoco is about, I'm, I'm missing, you're about 375,000 barrels per day, and I'm not saying BOE yeah. per day, and I know that's really relevant now because that's how you guys say it, and yeah, obviously the gas, the gas has a lot to do with that. But about, I'm guessing it, about 375,000 barrels of oil per day in the Permian, um, Midland being about 125,000 barrels a day, and Delaware being about 200,000 barrels a day. Yeah, something, that, that, that's it, pretty close. Yeah, I think the, from the call, Permian did 634,000 oil, or sorry, BOEs from the uh, lower 48, and about half of that is from Delaware, or from, from Permian, yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. So that, that makes sense. And um, I think, and obviously that the data is lagging a little bit. I was looking at Midland. You guys are showing... Roughly 14,000 foot laterals, you know, 11,000 yeah. feet over the last two years. And we talked extensively in the last podcast about, you know, long, those longer laterals in the Midland. I think the 14,000 foot laterals in, in is yeah. pretty significant. And that's showing on average, you're looking at, you're punching, you know, two and a half miles. And, and obviously folks are talking about, about three miles. And I would like to get into that. But I think it's the, and we're seeing, we're seeing a Delaware, you know, not Conoco, but the entire Delaware on average being 9,500 feet. That's a significant trend upward, but we're still not at the sort of, you know, the, the length we are in Midland. Um, and Midland is over, um, is about yep, 12,000 right. feet on average. Um, and I think that's really, really meaningful. But can you, uh, for listeners, sort of backtrack that and think about the Delaware, we have shorter laterals. Um, and part of that is because I think, you know, companies like EOG are vocal and that they don't necessarily go after the longer, you know, just they're doing it longer just because some of their laterals actually look shorter. Um, there's a number of different reasons for that. But I would love to know, you know, you, what are your thoughts on shorter yeah. laterals in in, in the yeah, Delaware I overall? think uh, t- starting from a technical foundation, there's no there's nothing that there's nothing that would give me concern with, with long laterals between Midland and Delaware, whether it's two, two miles, two and a half miles, three miles. Even we did the one three point six mile lateral in Midland Basin. Uh, but that was more of a leasing structure and how, how we how the acreage is mapped out. It wasn't necessarily because we we wanted to do it that way. But I guess economics on that was better than splitting it into two 1.8 mile laterals, if that makes sense. So I, I would think Delaware again. Each operator is going to have their own specific choices and what they're going to do. But I think that if for Delaware being shorter, my assumption would be that's just the what the leasehold would demand, or that's that's the most you can pull in, or, or kind of do the the, knife, the daily knife fighting of trading in and out of acreage. I think the, the limiter there would be this more more acreage acreage position bounded rather than technical bounded. It's certainly certainly that, that's how it is for us right. every day. And you heard on the call as well. Since the contra acquisition, we've done twenty five trades to bolt stuff together and uh, try to trade up and uh, either trade up in certain areas to get a longer lateral length or trade out of other areas where we can't drill where we don't want to drill one mile laterals. Frankly, um, so I think that that's been a key piece for us out here is just the the trades going back and forth. And um, 
you know, we, and we've we've talked we had talked about it before about the the yeah. role of privates, right? I mean, private operators are ex- you know extremely significant overall in the U.S. Um, I love I was re-listening to your podcast, and I love the we had a, a big conversation on ducks, <laughs> um, and I think that's it's it's actually really relevant in terms of these private companies because if you just pull up ducks and you look at where these private companies are at, there's so so many holes being poked in the ground, and a lot of these privates, and if you just look at the map yeah. of the pot privates and the publics, you know, forget about what a duck is or isn't. It's a hole poked in the ground that's going to be brought on under production at some at some point. And so I think sometimes we we focus in on those production numbers a little bit too much and and realize don't realize that that production's coming online, even even with stickiness and inflation and having a hard time getting truck drivers and, and lag times there, like the production will eventually come online. Um, but in the Delaware, you know, when we talked about before we were talking about of the role of private operators in lots, obviously, on the Midland side. But you're alluding to, we, we do have a lot of private operators also on the Delaware side. Um, and those private operators are sort of intermingled. Um, and that means that, so if, you, if you're part of the reason you don't have excessively long laterals is because that acreage is not perfectly right. blocked up uh, to drill a three or four, you know, to drill a three mile long lateral. And I had uh, somebody on the podcast with Pet- the Troy Ruths with the, the CEO with Petro AI. And we were talking about, you know, the, these privates, how complex that is, because they're sort of, I mean, if you're nestled in between other operators, you have to deal with that from a spacing and completion perspective in terms of how to maximize those well results. And I would just, you know, would love to get your your sort of feedback on the role of privates yeah. sort of being nestled in the Delaware and how that sort of, you know, wh- how that's working out in the Delaware with publics and privates, what sort of the trends you're, you're seeing. Um, any color and information you can you can give yeah, on that would be great. It's good to think about. The way I think about it is, so there's roughly 300 rigs in the, in the Delaware, or sorry, in the Permian right now probably 60% weighted to Delaware, 40% to Midland. But let, let's just call it 300 rigs in the Permian right now. I think it's anywhere from 50 to 60%, more than half, but somewhere between 50 and 60% of those are with, for, with privates. And then, you know, 40 or 50%, call it 55, 45. Uh, the other, under the 45% would be with publics. But, but the flip side of that is, I think probably 80% of your, maybe 75% of your base production coming out of the basin is owned and controlled by publics. So the way I kind of think about it is you've got 45% of the rigs that are supporting and maintaining the flat base. Then the other 55% of the rigs that, that the privates have, they're the ones, they are that growth wedge. Uh, you know, they're the growth wedge on that, call it 25% wedge though. Does that make sense? Right. Yes. Yeah, I, absolutely. And I think that's something, you know, we, we sometimes focus a little bit on the, you know, the rig so much in the public and private split, which I like to show a lot from an activity perspective. But yes, the the majority, the vast majority of production, which you guys control, you know, one of the biggest, you, know, you have a massive amount of production yep. in the basin, the vast majority of production is controlled by um, and swung by by the, right. the public. So no, that, that makes great sense. Um, so w- let, let's switch gears a, a little bit into, um, into uh, like, Obviously, we're talking about levels of activity. I would say on the technology side, and sort of we talked, we touched a little bit in last time about wet sand and what's going on there. And I think that is a little different in the Delaware than it is in the Midlands. So, love to talk about. You know, we talked about fr- frac efficiencies, simulfracs, yeah. wet sand. I, I think the um, the weight of inflation, and you you don't hear this as much in in public earnings calls. It's definitely talked about, but certainly in the investment community, when folks ask me, I mean, I get a ton of questions. The feedback I get when I talk to private companies is inflation is a really really big deal, and you know the ability to get workers into the field, the ability that you know just getting pipe, just getting you know, tubulars, casing, you know, you name it, just getting it um, is is difficult in the they're, when they're trying to 
actually plan their operations and get all their ducks in a row, no pun intended, it's, it's really, it's actually really important. And so when a truck driver quits and then you can't get that sand on location that day, I mean, this, this is something frequent that you hear about a lot. Um, so I'd like to touch base on that a little bit in terms of, you know, we could talk Delaware specific or, or all of Permian, but you guys obviously talk about inflation and in previous calls, you've mentioned sort of some of those factors, OCTG, yep. you know, sticky factors, labor, et cetera. Um, but what's, you know, we, we, that also bleeds into sort of frac and efficiency and simulfracs. Um, and I know that's something that's big that we talked about before of, you know, where's the growth and trajectory of that going and the efficiency on the frac side. And those efficiencies seem to, you know, they really matter when you have all the stickiness elsewhere and you're trying to manage that and you're trying to sort of offset not just the cost, but the time um, and make sure that you can keep operations flowing. And obviously you have massive operations. So um, would love to get your thoughts and pr- perspective and, and feedback on that to the extent. Yeah, that you're absolutely. So, I mean, you heard it on our call as well. Um, and even Ryan said it, Bill, Bill talked about it. I mean, inflation across the industry, whether it's Permian, whether it's Midland, Delaware, whether it's global, inflation's real. Um, I think I think Bill talked about the 9% inflation on our call. Um, that, of course, there's probably some gl- uh, global blending there, maybe slightly higher than that. I've also read, um, it might be slightly higher than that in the Permian. I've also read a couple on their Permian only um, public releases. And I, I think we're all in line seeing similar um, inflation in the area. Uh, but that's just cost inflation. The hard part, which you've already touched on, is just the, I, I kind of think about it like, you know, whatever, driving a race car, or whatever. When you know, you're, you know, you're going too fast when the wheels start to wobble, when things get a little shaky. I think for, for the kind of the support structure in, in the Delaware or in the Permian in general, you know, things are getting a little shaky just from, waiting on pipe being delivered, um, recent issues with cement getting delivered. And of course the cement's there, it's just getting it from point A to point B on time. A ton of logistics. I recently drove down to Alpine for a music festival, um, probably, I don't know, three or four weeks ago, and then driving back up from Alpine through Pecos and then on I-20 back to Midland. It, it's just a, it's a rodeo out, out, out there, of course, just every day what people are dealing with. So as you as things break down, as you're dealing with, you know, maintain, maintaining equipment point forward, uh, I, would, I would say the wheels are wobbling in the industry right now of just trying to be able to keep up with pace. Uh, obviously, from sand to pipe to cement to replacement parts to anything, you got to get it from point A to point B and load it on trucks and get it there. And there's a ton of activity going on out here. And is that I would, you know, I mean, there's there's a lot to sort of talk about and unpack just just in that. And I would I very much agree that that's I think everybody's sort of feeling that and seeing it. Um, how much of that, you know. In terms of 2014, and obviously the Permian Basin was not yeah. where it's at now. You, you actually didn't hit an inflection point of vertical versus horizontal rigs until sort of into 2014 in the Permian. But in the Bakken, we certainly certainly yeah. felt like that in the Bakken. If you were if you were drilling and producing in the Bakken, 2014 was Bananaville and everybody was going crazy and spending money and you had to spend extra just to get it done. Is it like that? Or, I mean, I, I feel like it's different in a way that, it, yes, the activity's ramped up, but it's also not being able to get things yeah. and you know you could pay enough to get a person on site so i'd just like to you know what are your reflections yeah. on that and how different it is yeah. um, so what- it's definitely i can definitely speak to that it, it's activities up but the but it's it's a i guess a force multiplier would be the right word between activity up and efficiency up we, we did a similar to what chevron announced in their public stuff a couple of weeks ago um we did something similar internally if you look about 2017 to 2018 where we were just as far as think, think about a metric as far as um, production added per year per rig line, you know, and call that kind of your, your index point of 1.0. Fast forward to 2022 with longer laterals, upspacing, bigger fracks, drilling faster, moving faster, semi-frac, put all those kind of multipliers on top of there. We're, we're getting anywhere from two to three times 
oil per rig line per year out of the basin than in 20, you know, four or five years ago. And that, that's we as an industry, of course, uh, Conoco's right in the average on that. We've been tracking a bunch of data around this. But, but when you think about just, you know, for a rig operating in an area and a core operating in an area, you're getting anywhere from two to three times more product, more productivity from where we were five, five, four or five years ago. That's what's causing the kind of the infrastructure wobbly. What I call the, the wobble on the infrastructure is we're not just we're not just at, you can't just look at rigs anymore. It, it's the, everything that comes with it as far as efficiency gains. And um, from that, I mean, we, we let's talk about the frack side and the sim of fracks. And I know the same thing for rigs. You can't just look at the, you know, here's the frack fleets. And that data is pretty limited access. And everybody, that's all restricted now. And everybody wants you to pay for it. So I, I, I can, can't actually tell you how many, because I don't have access to it, that, um, you know, how many frack fleets are running exactly right now in the Permian Basin. Um, but that... I wouldn't say that's irrelevant. It absolutely matters. But the ability to sort of add frack fleets, and I know Liberty yep. Energy and several, you know, folks are adding frack yep. fleets back, right? They're, they're reactivating frack because the demand is there and, and folks need them and they're reactivating. Um, but we had talked about simulfracks before and the efficiencies there. And I'd love to get your thoughts on, you know, where from where we were in January to now. Um, are we progressing on that simulfrack operation? Not just simulfracks, but I guess, uh, you know, yep. dual doing stuff simultaneously, having efficiencies, or is some of this hitting the breaking point? I mean, sort of, are, we're, we're simulfrax right now, we're, we're sort of the frack side right now, um, and we can touch base, yep. but, uh, you know, feed into that a little bit and talk about, you know, the, the tier, the different right, tiers right. on frack fleets and, and net gas, because I do think that's important on gas yeah. pricing. So, yeah, you bet. have so, at it. Um, we are, at least for Conoco Permian, me personally, I'm, I'm a big fan of simulfrack. Um, the, the hard part there is, you need, you need you definitely need a four to six well pad so you can't do a two well pad can't do a three well pad you might be able to do a five well pad and technically but they really want four to six well pads to do semi-frack just because the way it's structured so you got to convince the the uh, number one that takes a big commitment if, if you're if, you, if you're not big enough of a company to do a four well pad that, that that limits some people out of not being able to do it but then there's the other piece is you know you basically have one big fracker on location that's pumping twice as much water per day so if you don't have the infrastructure to get you yourself that water if you don't have the sand commitments to get, get you that much sand per day, then there's really no use in doing sami frack. But we've seen, uh, went from anywhere from, this is Midland Basin. Uh, we, we do have a couple cores or uh, so from time to time of a sami frack core in Delaware. But for Midland, we were doing anywhere from eight to nine stages a day on a, on a zipper core up to seven, 16, 17, 18 stages a day on sami frack. So it is a, a nearly doubling of efficiency. Uh, maybe, maybe not efficiency, but, but pump time um, going down hole. We're, we're definitely big fans of it out here. We can talk about tier, you know, tier two, tier three, as well. But we're trying to adopt that as much as we can. But I think there is future um, growth towards more sami frack out here. It's just a much more efficient use of equipment as well. Um, I would say there's probably a little, again, I'm not not a technical frack guy. There's probably a little bit of synergy there on the uh, all the all the horsepower pumping down two wells at once, maybe a little less maintenance rather than two cores. But yeah, we're we're big fans of sami frack personally and, and in, in the basin. And you know, on the so in this progression that we've seen um, on the frack side in terms of the at least the desire, um, I would say sometimes we, we talk about demand, but maybe desire for, you know, the um, electric yeah. frack fleets, which we hear from operators. And you guys obviously have you were the first company to do your, your net zero push, um, which we'll, we definitely sure. need to touch on that triple mandate and energy security a little bit. Um, but, you know. That that's piece of it, right? Is a lot of a lot of ent a lot of companies, public um, and independents, and and you know the majors, all pushing for yep. electric frack fleets to help on their their CO two and their emissions footprint. Um, but I and then we talk about you know different you know 
basically it's the fuel that you're using, right? Uh, of, of how you're, are you drilling with, is it diesel? Sorry, on the frack side or is it natural gas? And I do think there's a bit of a problem now if we've got $9 yeah. natural gas. Um, so I'd, I'd love to just get your perspective on, you know, the fuel, you know, the electric frack base, the fuel we're using, the efficiency of yep. the frack side and, and sort of the cost there and how, you know, diesel and nat gas and how you guys are, you know, maybe not how you guys, how you were thinking about it or how Conoco's thinking about it, however you want yeah, to cover so that. I, I, I love talking about this, of course, from our last podcast, you know, I'm more of an energy guy than an oil and gas guy, but um, you talked about, you touched on e-frack and the, there's also the, the e-rig we're, we're going running down the road of just again, as an industry, J- just for some numbers though, um, if, if, if you're talking purely e, e-rig or e-frack, uh, a a drilling rig, if you, when you, if you want to plug it into the grid, it's going to pull about three to four megawatts off of the grid. That, that, that's that's not, not a problem for the grid to supply. A frac core, though, the frac cores, if you're a regular core, it's about 30,000 horsepower. If you're a semi-frac core, it's about 50,000 horsepower. And if you convert that to megawatts, it's about 20 to 30 megawatts that you need to put onto the grid. So I don't know if our grid, again, collectively out here in the Permian, I don't know if our grid is quite ready for a full e-frac out here. Uh, as much as we, we would support it. So there's a little nuance when you say EFRAC. There's, there's actually what they do is they set a, a natural gas driven turbine on location to generate these 20 megawatts. And then again, we're, we're all for that as well, because then you're nearly 100% off diesel and you're running on uh, pure gas. But back to your point on gas prices right now, if, if we can get to the point where we can um, use field gas rather than trucking out LNG or CNG, if, if we can use field gas, there is still a pretty good savings on. Uh, burning field gas in, in the turbine to power the frack fleet relative to again because yes gas um, gas price is definitely up but so is diesel so it's, it's still it's still an economic trade-off in the positive way to run run the tier four dual fuel or to do this gas gas uh, e-frack as well right and I, I think that's why i mean folks probably i guess the appreciation for being very nimble in the field i mean these sort of microgrid yep. solutions um and building able, especially as efrac gets built the microgrid solutions that you know sometimes we have to actually pull ourselves away from it just being a pure environmental or esg thing and really more about what is the most efficient and cost effective and you know flexibility for the industry to progress at different yep. commodity prices um and I'm guessing there's times, obviously, as you alluded to or pointed out, that field gas makes total sense. Might not, all, especially if you can't, if we can't take this away. And you know, at 18, 19 BCF a day of, of associated gas and, and dry gas production or gas production in the Permian, it's a huge amount of production. You know, we're we are producing gross withdrawals in the U.S. around 120 BCF a day, billion cubic feet per day of natural gas. We have a lot of this stuff, and so in the Permian, as as we were talking out before about gas and gas prices, we're going to get we're Obviously, you're not producing most targeting. You have the capturing, but I have a feeling, and I know we have lots of natural gas, you know, pipeline projects coming online, and the, there's a planning for this. Um, but sometimes you can have dislocations, you know, whether it's a month or two months or three months or six months, where things are a little bit tight. And that's probably when, obviously, there's a, a huge ability and need and incentive to use field gas that could really be helpful and flexible yep, in those yep, times. Agreed. So certainly for the anywhere we can in the permian but if we have the, the field network to use field gas then yeah we, that, that's the number one way for us to save money and win on on any kind of e-frac or even tier four frac solution uh, again i'm not 100 percent tied to the frac side of things but i think i think like, i'm thinking like far west um eddy county or north lee county where you're kind of isolated on a small lease i think when you start doing that there's probably not much of a, a savings between the diesel and the you know hauling um com- com- compressed natural gas that far it's, it's still the, the right thing to do economically to, to do gas rather than diesel, but it, it, your margins probably shrink, shrink down on the savings there. 
Yeah, and I mean, I mean, that's the point of. So if you're looking at 924 natural gas and 87 WTI, and obviously diesel prices are really high, but if 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 the refinery side which I've talked a lot about on previous podcasts and presentations. I mean, our refinery side is a, a bit out of whack, obviously, because we've had a million barrels a day lost refining right. capacity in the U.S. and and total a few million barrels a day lost refining capacity. So we're still out of whack. You can go to the gas station. You can see gas prices have come down. Diesel prices, not quite so much. So we're a bit out of whack there. But as those come down, if you're, if you're let's just say we're at $80 WTI and diesel cr- prices come down, think the economics on if you're at $9 nat gas, things are going to flip. Um, and that's what we're obviously seeing. In, in Europe right now with when you have $67 and, you know, $68 an MCF um, and your dollars per megawatt hour, I believe it's the equivalent of a, it's $400. It's basically the equivalent right now per megawatt hour of $400 a barrel of oil. So the reason why you're seeing so much, um, you're seeing so much gas to oil switching, which is again, the fact that we're $87 right. WTI and we're seeing massive gas, you know, additional gas to oil switching on the on the electric side right. globally um, means that there's stuff going on the demand side, but it's something that I know it's not the same as, as talking about the Permian, but it is kind of the same. I mean, you're seeing you're seeing folks in, in Germany and, and all over the world switch from a power sector from from gas to diesel uh, because the diesel is actually significantly cheaper just because those prices right. are so out of whack. And I think that, you know, nine, 924 nat gas in the U.S. is really, really yep. concerning um, because it is... Um, you know, it's obviously impacting electricity prices. It's it's impacting people's ability to heat and fuel homes. Um, but if you, I mean, it's it's pretty unsustainable when you look at you know when we were at these prices last time. We it def, it definitely led into a recession. Um, there was housing and and a gazillion other factors, but it's it's really huge. And I think for the industry, I imagine it's definitely on the. It has to be a forefront of hey, these prices are great, but we're getting a little, especially when we're seeing a little bit of softening right. in demand. We're seeing WTI in the 80s, and we're seeing net gas prices go up. That's got to be something you know, that oil companies are thinking about saying, okay, we got to navigate this. And that means that we're seeing softer demand for oil, but high net gas prices. And that's yeah, going to be yeah, complex. It's, uh, I mean, completely agree. It's amazing what it all it kind of still all boils down to economics, doesn't it? It, it absolutely does. Um, and it's tricky and you just have to, you know, walk through it, you know, closely navigate it and figure it out. I'm not saying that this stuff is, is an economic. So we can we can put a pause in it there. I think this this goes into well, um, you know, in your earnings call, I think it, you open up and it talks about, you know, you talk about your executives talk about the macro and energy security. And this has been something that's been emphasized in previous calls. In our actually previous podcast, it was done in January. And we were talking about Russia and Ukraine. And before the invasion ever happened on the buildup of troops and what was going on on that side and that net gas prices were around, um, they were around $4. Actually, they were four sixty seven dollars at the time on um, January 28th, 2022. And so obviously we're seeing double of that. But this energy security point, and I think this is something that Con has really leaned into as other companies as well is that one integration on the LNG side, but it's sort of with your triple mandate, which is you know your ability to sort of meet the energy you know transition demand. And I think actually I, I thought long and hard about this because I know I've criticized it before. But the way you guys are, the way this is being um, conveyed now, you have a lot of flexibility because there's an emphasis now on, on how long net, net gas and oil are going to be there. Um, the net zero, which I do disagree with, but you have that. And then the third thing is the competitive returns, which which I agree with that. Um, but this sort of, the first piece of the meeting the demand, I mean, in this last earnings call, the nat- natural gas is so emphasized because of your agreement with Qatar and ramping that up. Um, a lot of talk about supply chains and the integration 
of LNG and sort of the, you know, what it's going to look like in the future and the fact that you produce so much natural gas, you can get it to market. And so obviously investing in LNG and, and exports is significant, but that it's still going to take time, right? That that is not a, a switch that's going to turn on tomorrow. You guys are obviously being able to market your gas. And, and if you're able to market your gas and export it now, you're capturing those prices of LNG. But obviously in the future, even if even if gas prices are a fraction of what they are now abroad, that's still vastly more than we're getting and you'll probably get in the future. So it's, it's something to think about. And that really plays into sort of, I think that, you know, as, as was mentioned is um, in the earnings call is, is Ukraine, you know, the how oil companies are thinking about natural gas now, how think oil companies are actually thinking about the energy transition and natural gas as a transition fuel. Now, personally, I, I, I would I would explain it and express it a little differently. I think uh, companies were a little bit late to the party in terms of saying that the world needs energy um, and recognize that, although I still really respect that that's how the call was opened up with. Um, and the energy security is really important and that, that we need to be producing energy. And I think, um, you know, Chris Wright, and I mentioned this a ton, but he actually spoke directly in the Liberty Call saying that if this industry, if we in this industry aren't able to talk about what we do and that it's that we have to be producing more oil, no one's going to do it for us. And I really was extremely disappointed in some other earnings calls where, you know, it's it, folks are talking about Colorado and the ESG and they're linking, you know, the permits in Colorado and ESG. And, you know, energy security is not one of the biggest things being talked about. And that's extremely serious because we are the company, you guys are the companies that are producing the oil and gas that, that people need. Um, and so at the very least, you need to like what you do um, and, and be behind what you do. Um, and I think that's just extremely important and it's critical because, and, and be investing in it as opposed to, you know, being talking more about the the renewables, which are, which can work, but just not in this environment. Um, and I don't even know if they can work, you know, honestly in the future, but it's just really critical. So I know I, I've thrown a lot at you, but I think that that natural gas piece, the energy transition and how you sure. guys talk about it and how you guys are, you know, investing in it. Um, and I know it's not directly related to the Delaware, but I mean, it is. Um, so the extent that you want to, you know, jump in on that, I'd love to hear your yeah, thoughts. Yeah, definitely. So I, I, I definitely, uh, you know, coming over from Concho to Conoco and this, the, the triple mandate was kind of new to me, but the more I, the more I see it, the more I read about it, the more I hear, I hear Ryan and other ELT members talk about it. I, I do stand behind all three legs of it, um, including the, the net zero ambition. Uh, I stand behind all three legs of the, the mandate. The first one, like you said, mentions the, you know, to me, meet the meet the tra- transition demand. Um, when, when we transition, how we transition, what we transition to, I don't know. But you've seen the same EIA reports that, that that others have seen. Is you know when you look at whether it's domestic, whether it's global, whether it's oil, whether it's gas, whether it's coal, there there's no energy source in the next fifty years that's declining. Oil is either flat to up, natural gas is definitely up, solar green is up. Um, you know everything's either flat to up on energy. So. We're here to meet that demand. Definitely energy security is a key part of that, whether it's, again, domestic and energy or international. We definitely, um, I also read Chris Wright's, um, their, the company, their uh, statement, was it human, make human lives better? I, think, I can't remember the exact term of it, but I read that and I think I think very great piece of work by them. Um, but yeah, we're, we are here just to um, fuel and fund energy to the world. It's part of what we're doing. It's part of what, what the Semper thing that we, that we did as well is to more access to, to international and LNG markets to help broaden the, the scope of natural gas. So definitely uh, agree with the meat, meat transition demand side of things. And obviously we're a publicly held company, so we, we, we have to, and we need to believe in the need to need to deliver competitive returns on and of capital. You know, you saw the, you saw, again, you saw the earnings report as well, increasing the buybacks, increasing the, the variable return of capital. We are, re- and again, the Semper and the Shell deal, both of those are going to be fantastic investments. So we are returning on and of capital. The net zero ambition, obviously we can, we can, debate that. There's all kinds of churn in the market about that, but that, that's a company directive we've decided to take on and we're, we're going to meet it. 
Um, of course, we've got lots of time to do it. It's a, it's a 20, I think a 2050 ambition. And we, we're working internally on how we're going to get there. And I mean, obviously, that's kind of like everything else. The the top 80% is going to be very, very doable. The top 20% will figure it out as, as, as we go down the road. So I definitely stand behind all, all three sides of it. But, but to, your, to your comment earlier on, on awesome. the... Uh, well, I know... Sorry, to, to your comment earlier on, on U.S. energy security, I did a little research over the weekend. Um, it's just, it's fascinating to me that the Permian combined with Midland makes about 18 BCF a day of a 91 BCF market. Mm-hmm. So was that, you know, 20% of the Permian, sorry, 20% of the U.S. natural gas energy comes from, Absolutely. I don't know, 10,000 square miles out here relative to, the US, relative to the rest of the size of the U.S. Pretty, pretty important to what we're doing out here. And then within that, you know, Conoco, I think this is on the earnings call um, last week, Conoco markets and moves about 10, 8 to 10 um, BCF a day. So we manage and move about, about uh, 10% of the, the uh, U.S. gas as well. So we definitely believe in, in energy and, and energy security. Well, no, and I think that's fantastic. I appreciate the explanation. Um, and I, I don't mind, you know, obviously I love uh, I love a guest who interrupt and I like, I don't mind getting pushback or, or disagreement. So, and I really appreciate the explanation. So I think that's fantastic. And I love that you clarified how much, because I think the earnings call said something seven to eight BCF a day, you know, obviously being an integrated market, really good point on the Permian that you just mentioned of that 20, you know, it's eight, so 18, 19 BCF a day of the market. I mean, also it makes me think of, you know, if you're just looking at New Mexico and I keep, I tell people people this, but New Mexico alone is producing 1.5 million barrels per day. So that's Lee and Eddy counties. That's two counties. That's a little sliver of producing a million and a half barrels a day. That is incredible. So that is more than small, you know, small OPEC countries. It's it's a massive amount. It's a, it's it's some of the best rock in the entire world. I mean, obviously, you know, the, I love all of the Permian Basin, but it's a gift that's going to keep on giving. There's a lot of rock there. I'm not concerned from a technological perspective that we can pull more out of this uh, and put more wells. I mean, that doesn't even include, you know, future, you know, EOR and enhanced oil recovery and refracking, et cetera. Um, but I just think it's extremely important because that's why that's why I'm a little bit more cautious um, on, you know, investor pandering um, in terms of the, the net zero stuff. And it's because that when we start linking, it's been done in Colorado where the ESG stuff is is linked to, you know, permitting and, you know, talk about it permitting and oh, we're getting permitting and now we're doing our ESG stuff. And it's like, well, you have to be very, very careful on that road. You, tr- you, you trend down um, because obviously I think that, you know, the, the bill, the um, Inflation Reduction Act, which is also called now the climate change bill and who only knows what they want to call it tomorrow. But it that was signed into law yesterday. Um, and I believe in your earnings call, it was actually mentioned that, hey, there's not a lot of clarity on a number of these things. You know, there's some great things from uh, carbon sequestration credits, but actually there's supposed to be another tack on bill to clarify a bunch of the energy stuff. And it gets confusing and gets complex. I mean, obviously, Joe Manchin went went for it because he wanted a pipeline built. Who That's I, the likelihood of that getting built, I think, is is maybe a little bit low. Um, if not incredibly low, but, but the point is, is that, you know, you can't have, you know, the net zero stuff actually came, you know, the, let's say not necessarily net zero Paris climate accords are sort of what started, you know, here's where we need to be at 2050. And that's where the international energy agency tacked onto that with their net zero 2050 report. And that net zero 2050 report says you, you should not be producing, you should not be investing at all in oil and gas. And so, you know, I think it was something easy for industry to sort of grab onto and say, this is our plan. This is what we're doing. Um, and that's what, you know, investors seem okay with that. I think it's also at the time where oil prices are high, right? So oil prices are high. This is something that can be invested in. It's tangible. It's something the market can be told in a lot of companies tagged onto this. But I think in terms of and what you guys have been very good about and talking about now, and especially in the last three quarters, I think is emphasizing is that 
we're willing to actually grow production. I mean, not crazy. You're not saying, hey, we're, we're going to add several hundred in a billion. We're doing this. But you're saying, no, we're going to grow production. I think few companies have said we're increasing our capex and we need to grow production. And we're talking about energy security. And that's that's, I think, a difference. Um, and I think that's meaningful and that more companies and you guys have sort of, um, you know, explained that and expressed that. And I think that's what's important is that, you know, industry leaders, you know, you're 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 putting a drill bit into the ground. And you're producing a commodity and you're producing something that folks need. And it's really important. That's how you're actually making money as well. So, yes, shareholder returns are important. You know, people, you know, give delivering strong returns and being an investable company. But I think as uh, as time progresses and the world has changed a lot. And you said, no, you pointed out that look at the forecast for energy demand, um, we're going to see energy demand. We're already seeing energy demand for, for wood go up significantly in Europe. You know, people are going to be burning their stoves. We're going to see, I guarantee you, we will see coal in homes really increase. You know, in, in China, we see a lot of folks still burning coal in homes. We actually see that. We see that we have it in America still. But you'll see that go up significantly. And I think coal demand overall is going to go up massively. Um, it's not going to flatline. It's not going to decrease because of this, uh, because of the war in Ukraine and because of everything that's happening. I mean, there's energy issues going on right now in China, you know, they have a 17% of their grid is hydroelectric and they are are cutting back, uh, they're cutting back electricity massively in cities right now because they have a very hot summer. Lots going on with China separate from that, but very, very serious stuff on the energy security point that's going to be, that is already game changing um, and changing the the future trajectory and the outlook. And I think a lot of companies, um, particularly in the US, will have to catch up to that rhetoric and realizing that, you know, the E is not as, um, you know, from an investment standpoint, may not be the most important thing in the world. That all these other things actually matter too, and and there's there's more to ESG than just the. Yeah, so again, it, it, I, I agree with most of everything you said. Um, I, I guess the one 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 adjustment I would say, is, at least from a ConocoPhillips perspective, obviously we're here to meet the transition demand. We're, we are growing energy. We 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 all, I think we again collectively as an industry need to get smart about how we do it. And if we just ramp up the oil price, we're going to do exactly what we did to ourselves in previous generations. Is we all, we all ramp up and price is going to crash and then we all lose money and then we ramp back up and like we, somehow we need to end, end the cycle and be smart about it. But I think the the change the, the other tweak we're making out here and collectively again is we're we are acknowledging that we could do it more responsibly with how we whether it's CO two probably meth, the more important one would be methane right now with everything we're trying to do around that. There's certainly a more responsible way to do it going forward than the way the industry has done in the past. And I think that's the route we're choosing. Right. No. And I, and I, I completely agree with that. It's not that I would, I would, I would say, you know, there's a lot of companies that are probably foregone uh, production that they shouldn't have at a hundred dollar oil price environment and, and pr- should have ramped up. And then it's really navigating how that comes off because it's, it's going to come off. And I would, before we close, I would like to touch on, you know, lower oil prices, but you uh, going back to LNG and your Semperus. So can you talk a little bit about that? I know yeah. that's not your, you, that's not your day to day in your wheelhouse. Um, but obviously you guys have, you know, talked about Qatar and investment, you know, long-term relationship with Qatar. You talked about LNG out of the Gulf coast and and Sempros, can you just unpack sort of the big moves that you've made in LNG yeah. um, and what that means for the company? That it is directly tied into your, you know, your role of, of producing that gas in Delaware. And yeah, yeah. It, it, I think a lot of what I would say would line up with what's already been said on the uh, earnings call is we are we are big believers in long, long. Of course, we, the price will fluctuate, but we're um, long believers in gas, whether it's domestic gas, international gas. I think we also increased a ten percent stake in the APLNG side in, in over in Australia. Um, again, we're, we're big believers in gas. That, that's a highly economic asset, and we want, want to put more gas on the market. So that, that was part of the rationale there. And the Semper deal, it, it seems like a pretty pretty key um, key area for us to get invested into hard assets to take Bakken gas, take Permian gas, take any gas we can 
and have access to what we believe is going to be a growing LNG market down the road. So it's a very, very strategic point on our side to uh, align ourselves with that, uh, with that group to get more LNG on the water. Right. And I think, you know, that's where I think it's really interesting that, and I, I, one, I think, you know, we have, as you guys have extremely low break evens on natural gas. I mean, I think a lot of companies, you know, I said this in our previous podcast and I mean it that, you know, history is not going to look favorably upon shell for selling their asset to you. It's a very smart buy. I mean, you guys did a really good job with, with Concho, um, you know, your previous company and shell, um, and really have, you know, invested in the right way, even, and talking net zero, but you're actually investing in, in upstream oil and gas and giving yourself a lot of flexibility. And we've seen a lot of majors actually sell out of shale gas in the U.S., which I think is obviously does not look smart at all right now. Um, and, and truthfully, you know, there was a just because it didn't work in their portfolios or whatever, but obviously with prices now and we have very low break evens in the U.S. So it, unless you're in the Marcellus and and I still I love the Marcellus dearly, but, you know, you have to build a pipeline in order to grow you know, production and move us to market. Um, and that's really difficult. So let's say, you know, Haynesville, every, basically every other play, if you can get this to market, the break-evens are really low. So $9 is, is oh, you know, over our skis in terms of the economy. And it's something that will, is going to break people. But, you know, $4 is a healthy price for natural gas for, for returns yes. um, for a lot of these that are just yep. pure dry gas. And I think it's interesting to think of, you know, hey, we're willing to invest heavily in LNG. And I'm saying we as in you guys, but the industry, like we're willing to invest in LNG and, and natural gas and we're willing to drill into it and produce this stuff because we know that the U.S. has a different price point and that we can put this abroad and we're produce, we're exporting 12 billion cubic feet per day. Qatar is exporting about 12 billion cubic feet per day. Australia is exporting about 12 billion cubic feet per day billion cubic feet per day. More natural gas needs to be on the global market. Yes, prices will drop over time, but they're not going to crater because folks need this and it is a long-term fuel and long-term demand. I think that's a little bit different and interesting in oil. And one, that's because oil is a um, is a deep and liquid market and we understand the oil market a lot better and we move lots of ships of oil around the world. And that's not the same for natural gas. So when just describing the ad, you know, 12 times through, that's your basically roughly your LNG market. Um, and so when we started exporting LNG, we depressed, we hit the spot market. You know, we change spot prices for global natural gas because it's so insulated because you have to pipe and compress this and it's complex, whereas oil, it's different. And that's what's interesting to me is oil prices are dipping into the 80s. And, you know, I am very, I've been honest and and comfortable talking about it. I know I'm going to be wrong. I'm okay with that too. But, you know, we're easily, I think, I'm way more comfortable at the end of the year seeing 80s, if not lower now. I didn't think we'd see 80s, you know, quite as quickly as we have. But I think demand is certainly, it's not oil prices that you know, crimp demand. It's it's oil prices and inflation and high gas prices and high everything prices and very, very high core inflation like food and shelter and homes and heating that's really hitting the consumer. UK inflation just came out last night above 10% and it was core inflation that really had folks worried. Um, so inflation across the globe, energy is a huge part of it. Obviously, fertilizers and the food crisis and everything really compounded but it's all impacting oil demand. And I think that that what I'm not hearing yet in earnings calls, and you know, I really I have to mention it is because I was when I was listening to the Pioneer call, this this comment that was made on, you know, being confident of a hundred dollar oil and and strong demand going forward for the next five years, I don't see that. And I know a lot of folks disagree with me on that, but 
I don't see a healthy macro demand environment. I see a supply issues for sure. Um, but I see actually supply coming online in a declining demand market. And I don't think demand's cratering, but it's coming off. So I'm curious yep. as how, you know, you guys think, I know that's not, you know, database is a business or whatever, but how you think about that personally, how does the, the company yep. think about that? And, you know, are you comfortable at $80 oil with, with the levels of inflation that we're seeing? And, and how do you sort of think about the math or $75 oil with this inflation? Does it still work? Is it still profitable? Because I'm assuming, you know, to a large extent, it probably yeah, is. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with everything you said there. I think, at, at, so on both sides of the equation, for the Permian, we definitely work at $80 oil. You know, at this price, even with inflation, we, you know, we're still near $40 break even. So, if you're if you're double that, we're very very comfortable with where we are. Hopefully, we get some deflation in the market. You know, if, if we've inflated to a hundred dollar equivalent market and it goes down to eighty, hopefully, we get some deflation in there. But even if even if not, um, we, we are very comfortable with an eighty. We're just everything we've run internally as well. Um, if we run top side numbers, we run low side numbers, and, and we're very comfortable with this. And back to your other point on the uh, the flexibility of the Permian. If gas does drop as well, we can switch back to oilier zones, or if it keeps up, we can keep on the gas keep heading towards the gassier zones. Um, and, and of course, I, I get Pioneer making you know, whatever statement was around $100 oil, but the only, only thing we've, we've proven to ourselves year after year, every time we believe any chart you're looking at, but mainly price, if we believe it's going to be up up into the right forever, you know, it, it's going to change, we're going to have to adapt. So it uh, wouldn't shock me if it's 100. It wouldn't shock me if it's 80. I think anywhere in this kind of band of uh, geopolitics, supply, demand, um, and uh, all, all the... Um, transportation across the US, I think that windows is very accurate or very, very appropriate and what we're comfortable anywhere in there. And if if prices were, and this is something I've tried to bring to a lot of clients and and folks just thinking about that to get to think about risk, you know, obviously we could have you know, algorithmic trading and downside risk, certainly for I don't I don't think we have a sustainable supply demand market where, you know, we really tank the market by any means. But, you know, trading can do that. However, I think, you know, if prices were go to 75, 80, inflation should come off a little bit, meaning that if the global economy, if the US economy is softening, unemployment has to rise with interest rates rising. That's a given. It lags a bit, but it's unemployment's going to rise. And I think that, you know, something that the industry needs to get ahead of is that if you can hire more people, if you have a little bit less, you know, of that tightness on, you know, labor and you're able to get a little more people in the field, but you have $75 oil, that deflationary, you know, that sort of taking the, you know, the top off this very fizzy bottle that's about to explode. I mean, I feel like that has to help significantly to sort of ease some of this tightness and some of those constraints and being, you know, if, if we're, you know, the economy softening, but this industry is hiring, I feel like one, that's not just beneficial to people finding jobs, but that's really beneficial to the industry as well. Um, would you agree with that? And does that helpful even at a $75 price environment? And are you guys thinking yeah, about definitely. that? Definitely. I mean, I think where we are now with just inflation and um, hiring around the, the country, I mean, parts of Lee and Eddy County, um, like Hobbs, that area, they're down to, you know, 2% uh, unemployment rates. Midland over here, probably 2 to 3% unemployment rates. So I think any softening, if, if I heard you right, any softening in other markets would, and if that drives more people back out here, would definitely help um, get, get things back on track out here. Not, I don't say that from like, like things are off the track, but it would help kind of the wobbling of the wheels we talked about earlier, the more people we have out here in, again, in, in Southeast New Mexico, in West Texas to do these jobs would be fantastic. It would, it would increase reliability of everything. Um, services being delivered to location would be great. And even at the $75 price range, again, hopefully it comes with some deflation. You're already seeing, seeing it in the steel market, uh, you know, steel's dropping. Hopefully that translates to casing and tubing soon. Um, but hopefully there is some deflation if it goes down that low. 
Yeah, no, that's a good point. Are, uh, is the access then it, when that steel prices are dropping? Is at least the access to it, even if the um, if the prices aren't translating to OCTG, you know, and, and tubulars and casing, is the access helping, or is that helping on the access a little bit? Yeah, I've heard of a few other smaller companies out here that you know they have to wait a couple more days on pipe. Of course, we we have larger larger um, contracts with bigger companies as well, so we have, we haven't had to wait on pipe yet. But other companies have had to wait for for casing, which is rough. Tubing, I haven't heard much of that out there, but yeah, there has, has been tight. I think a lot of it's been cleared up lately, though. Well, that's great. Well, we've taken, um, I've taken 50, you know, eight minutes and 54 seconds of your time. We've taken an hour of our listeners' time. You've been a fantastic guest. Um, is there anything you would like to to add that we didn't touch on that you would like to close uh, I, with? I guess one of the thought I had earlier, um, and I forgot to mention it, just going back to your, your public, and pri- public versus private thing, there were comments on, sorry. I don't normally talk this much in my, my day job. Um, one thing I would go back to on the public versus private, um, I, I think that's exactly how the market is working. You know, the publics, again, back to shareholder return, back to whatever on their on their thing is limiting them. I think they're doing exactly what they're they're supposed to be doing is, is flat production, maybe maybe moderate, call it call it disciplined growth or d- disciplined production. And I think that's again that's exactly what, what we are collectively collectively are being called to do. But on the opposite side, the private side. They're doing exactly what they're being called to do. They have a high price environment. They're coming off of a, a low, a, a low uh, service environment. Granted, it's, it's higher now, but again, their their challenge or their their task is to go make value for their private investors. Whether it's take take a risky area, drill it up on PDP, flip it and sell it. You know, every this market is working exactly like it's supposed to be doing right now, uh, which is kind of fun and fascinating to be in in, in part of it. So I, I kind of like where we are. I don't want the publics to get up get out there and grow a bunch and then put us right back to where we were as far as now we're having layoffs and things crashing back down. So yeah, that's one thing I wanted to add in there is I think the market out here is working just like it's kind of designed to do between public and private. Oh, I, I appreciate the explanation and no, it is a fantastic business and, and um, I think it's going to be here for a very long time in terms of, you know, needing, needing the commodities and, and running in the right way and, and actually doing it efficiently. Um, so Aaron, you've been a fantastic guest. Again, this is the Petronas podcast, episode 57. Um, Aaron Hunter, this is the second time we've had him on the podcast. So please listen to episode 38 um, before or after this, because it, it really helps bring this together. Um, um, Aaron Hunter is the vice president of the Delaware for ConocoPhillips. Um, do I have that right, Aaron? Okay. Yes. So, um, fantastic guest, really great podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Glad to be here. Appreciate all you do. All right. Thank you. Bye.